0: Welcome to All Things Intriguing. I'm your host, Dr. Ray Newkirk. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome always. We're in Applied Moral Wisdom, Episode 9. We're about to wrap this up. One episode to go. The name of this episode is Gentleness is Never an Accident. Gentleness requires constant attention. Wherever love abounds, gentleness flows. That which connects us to the loveliness of life is treated with the gentleness and that it leads us to the gift of friends and family, the sacred, the home of our spiritual life. And living the gentle life, therefore, we live the spiritual life. Gentleness requires constant attention. For the deeply spiritual person, gentleness is the guiding attitude. Deeply spiritual people see all creatures as suffused, by cosmologically divine love. For the deeply spiritual person therefore, every person evokes gentleness formed in love. Authentic gentleness cannot be experienced any other way except through love. And remember when I talked about earlier what love is? Not an emotion, it's a decision to live a certain way with human beings and to deal with other people differently than you would people you don't love. There are ultimately only two possible adjustments to life. One is to suit our lives to principles. The other is to suit principles to our lives. If we do not live as we think, we soon begin to think as we live. The method of adjusting moral principles to the way people live is just a perversion of the order of things. Fulton Sheen said that, in other words, if we have principles and we don't want to live by them, we live less than with our principles. Those become our principles, that way of living. It's really a perversion of life. We know what the principles of a good life are. We know what love really means. But to change that, to adjust those moral principles to to kind of like break them down to make them easier is a perversion of the order of things. Because the order of things is that you live for a to be better people. Gentleness requires constant attention. It's the third time I've said that. It doesn't happen accidentally. For the person living a deeply spiritual life, the world becomes a symbol of the sacred. The Holy Presence, that means the presence of all of us. Every human being is a holy person capable of so much good and so much wonder in life, so much creativity so much sharing, so much kindness. It's kind of a sacred thing, you know. Such a person responds to life with a thoughtful gentleness. They think about what they do. When they say yes, they mean yes. When they say no, they mean no. They're thoughtful people. Gentleness forces us to be thoughtful because it's the same thing. Being thoughtful evokes gentleness, it's kind of a grace. That means a certain presence. This grace-filled attitude of encounter with life transforms a person's complete approach to life. If we develop an attitude of gentleness, it's really a powerful attitude that creates a potent life. It's an encounter with life that transforms a person's complete approach to living. It's their presence will be a great presence. Gentle people are people we like to be around. There's a certain grace to them that fills our environment when they're with us. So it's a grace filled attitude, this attitude to be potent potently gentle. Truly gentle people are few, but they do exist. They're not everywhere, but they're out there. You can recognize these people by their delicate response to life. They're very slow to condemn people, they're not judgmental, they're kind, they're thoughtful. Through their words, gestures, manners, a calming gentleness pervades their life. They convey a special delicate gentleness, an internal and external behavior in words and deeds. They're kind. No problem, they'll say. No problem. It'll work out. It's fine. We'll make it happen. It's not the end of the world. No? Think about it. Truly gentle people are few, but they exist. These people have a gentle approach to people, animals, and even the simplest things in their lives. I once knew a guy who was partnered in a law firm in San Francisco, big law firm, had a wonderful little daughter, came to the house to visit one day, and he saw some insects in the foyer. He actually went and got a piece of paper out of the office at our house, got his hands and knees and got those animals, those insects, and took them outside and let them go. That's pretty gentle. (laughs) I mean, I would take a spray can and zap him. But he was kind of like that. He had a very gentle approach to life. How he dealt with people. How he worked with clients. How he worked with criminals. He spontaneously lived as if everything mirrors divine love and beauty. He really believed that. To the simplest things in life, he was gentle. In living the gentle life, the authentically spiritual person is fragile and takes emotional risk because they are open to life. They're not cowards. They don't hide. They don't manipulate. They, get their, they can get hurt because they have a certain fragility about them. They're long-suffering. Such people are often abused and broken because life can do that to them, but they bounce back with a smile in the face. I used to say, my friend Jerry Cooper used to say, you can beat me up and you can kill me, but you can't eat me because that's against the law. I will be back. <laughs> Jerry would say that all the time. You'd see, he'd always come back. He'd go through terrible challenges in life with the economy going up and down. In the Bay Area, having a good business one day, a bad business the next year. You can beat me up and you can kill me, but you can't eat me. That's against the law. I'll be back. All right. He was abused and broken at times, but he overcame it. For spiritual persons, their modest reflection of eternal beauty may be easily dimmed by their natural confrontation with the world. he would have to confront it. The guy asked me one time to loan him money to file bankruptcy. I said, well, I'll kiss that money goodbye, right? Actually paid us back Was that kind of person. He was the kind of guy that whenever he went out, he picked up the tab. He was gregorious He was not selfish at all. And then when things would be bad, he, he couldn't pick up the tab. So, you'd have to treat him, and he just felt odd about that. That he'd be on the other side. Felt odd about that. It just wasn't right for him. To have somebody care for him the way he cared for others. He always said, Thank you. Always showed gratitude. Such deep gentleness requires constant cultivation through grace. That means a certain presence of life based on honesty. With the heart's mind continually seeking the presence of the sacred, the respect of other people. He respected them. He loved people. He he looked at them with kind eyes. He truly cared that people got ahead. He truly cared that things would be better for them instead of worse. He would truly be disappointed and feel with great empathy for others when things went bad for them. There was no pretense. It was just the way he had become in his life. You know? Presence to the sacred deepens our experience of living. When we're present to other human beings, when we're not hiding from them, when we're there and we know we can manage our life. Awareness of the presence of the sacredness that steals gentleness in the deep recesses of the human soul. Correspondingly, this gentleness awakens us to the presence of the sacred that invited us first to live the gentle life. There's something that makes people want to be gentle about how they live because they find it's better and more rewarding and enjoyable to be gentle than otherwise in their own life. I know people out there, man, they hear this gentleness word and it blows their mind. Because they want to enforce. And they want to be tough. And they want to hammer, right? And make things happen their way. Forget the other. But you you get worn out quicker. You don't live as long. All right? You get senses. You get hopeless. I was never hopeless. Gentle people don't become hopeless. So there's something that reaches out to us. Something great inevitable. Something. That reaches out to us first so that we may respond by becoming present to the sacred. What was it in him that caused him To see human beings as noble. Right? What is that deep thing he would connect with. That he was there for you. And he never gave up. Never gave up. The presence to the sacred deepens our experience of living. And this is the cycle of life. Awareness and gentleness infinitely deepens in response to the infinite nature of our divine life. The life that's granted to us as a gift from the mystery of divinity. Whatever you call that. Good fortune, whatever. No but it's bigger than us. It's grander than us. It was there before we were. And we were born. And we were us. Not somebody else. What gives us the power to ask for the grace to even be helped by another? How do we ever say to ourselves on reflection? My gosh, save me from myself. I do stupid things. You ever had that experience where you say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Yeah, bump, bump, bump. I have those experiences in my life where I look back and I say, wow, I was really different when I was 25 than I was at 40. I was really different at 25 than I was at 15. How do we reflect on that? A reflective self-awareness allows us And enables us to become gentle. Most of the time, we're just confused people about so many things. Because there are really big questions we have no answers for. And we can get confused, you know. And we say, wow, what does this mean? Or, you know, and get into very negative and nihilistic kind of people. What saves us from that? What wakes us up? Seeking gentleness, we go to the source of all Gentleness to find ourselves as spiritual beings and evolved on a spiritual journey to attain deeper understanding of ourselves. Listen to what you feel if you want to know who you are. St. Thomas once wrote, if you really want to know somebody, just don't pay attention to what they do, but get to know what it is they love, where their heart is, because that defines who they are. So what's most important to you? What do you love the most? Really, think about it. What do you love the most in your life? That's who you are. If it's not good, change what you love. This is about applied moral wisdom after all this theory. About simplifying your life. About being in control of your destiny as much as you can be. Seeking gentleness, we go to the source of all gentleness to find ourselves as spiritual beings involved in a spiritual journey to attain deeper understanding of ourselves. We are the mystery that we solve forever. Right? (coughs) Excuse me. We live through a continuous awareness of the sacred. And that's us. We're kind of sacred, you know. You're sacred. Your friends are sacred. Your loved ones are sacred. A continuous awareness of the sacredness. That divine presence that is in you is the secret to living the gentle life. What makes you sacred? There is your life, your birth, your existence, your uniqueness, what you can aspire to, what you can become, what you can do positively for others. That's all sacred. That's your... Presence. This secret, the continuous awareness of our own existence and our own mystery, pervades all life. I once asked this professor, I really like her, I still think about her today. I had her back in the 80s. Why am I so different than my brother? She says, wow, that's easy. Because you're not your brother, Right? And she was dead serious. That was the answer to told me nothing. I already knew that. You know? Why are round rocks round? Well, because they're round and they're rocks. Oh, all right. <laughs> the secret, the continuous awareness of our own existence is a secret. How long are you going to be here? How long will your existence continue? Every day I'm reading about some great person or famous person a well known person who kicked a bucket. Wow. Just read about somebody who died in his sleep. Family totally unexpected him. A famous producer and director. I saw some of his movies, very entertaining. Died in his sleep, unexpectedly. Wow. Unceasingly, this secret about our own existence pervades our thoughts, feelings, and actions. You ever find sometimes that you get a little antsy, a little impatient, a little bit uncomfortable, and you have no idea why? Sometimes it's simply because you're wondering about yourself. You're hitting the secret of life. You ever walk away and say, I wish I could have handled that better. I wish I knew what I would have said to that person. You ever meet those situations where something unusual happens to you caused by another person, you honestly don't know how to respond? (laughs) One night we had a friend for dinner at our house. We were, my wife and I were newly married and we had moved to California and we, we worked with this lady and she came to our house for dinner and we had a glass table, a very nice expensive glass table, a table all made of a special kind of glass, really neat, looked like crystal. And during the dinner, she was sitting there with her diamond ring, cutting big marks <laughs> to our table. She wasn't even aware of it. She was doing X's and scratches and seeing how deep she could put ridges in her table. Isn't that amazing? You have to wonder what was going through her mind. i never forget that. That happened back in the 1980s. Yeah, in the spring of 1985. And she came to our apartment, nice place at the time. Liked to walk in there, our first place together, actually our second. We moved a lot. And here she was, a dinner guest, had a big, probably two-carat diamond from her ex, who was very successful. And she's sitting there carving <laughs> in our dining room table, all these crazy things wow i wonder if she ever even knew she did that we do strange things don't really know where. being good hosts we didn't say anything right we just kept it as a memorial to this person that we would remember i worked for her i worked for her i worked with her for a while quite nice lady very nice so there's a mystery about all of us Biggest challenge of our life is to know ourselves, let alone other people, right? We can have a lot of opinions about other people. Unceasingly, this secret pervades our thoughts, feelings, and actions. We have feelings about it. We think about it. We act on it. You know? Listen, my wife and I sometimes watch these cooking shows around the world. We like them. I was this his cook, cooking show one time and there's this movie, there's this celebrity that was doing the hosting and he wanted to go to cities where people lived the longest to see what their secret is. Now he traveled with a person who was kind of like an athlete. And so they went to all these cities. They went to Italy, they went to Sicily. They went to these target cities where there was evidence and records, there were studies were done about people who lived the longest. Like one village, everybody lived over 100 years old, that kind of thing. The average age of this community was 99.99, you know, crazy stuff like that. And they wanted to see how they lived. Well, they ate a lot of carbos and a little bit of protein. And they had their wine every night. And the average age in that community was like 102 or something like that. Just, that's an exaggeration, but they were all senior citizens up in their 90s. It's very common for somebody to live over 100 years old in that town in Europe. But if you look at what we're taught in America about diet and what to eat and what not to eat, they broke all of those rules. All of them. They're heavy in the carbs, And yet I know people like Elon Musk. Oh, no sugar for me, no sugar for me, no sugar for me kind of thing. But these people ate their pastries, drank their wine. Ate their pasta and all that stuff. And they all were very healthy. All of them. And city after city after city, wherever they went, where people lived a long life, same story. Low protein, high carb diet. Just the opposite. Isn't that amazing? Wow. What do we really know? What mystery are we really? Why do some people do that and other people will Stroke out if they lived like that. See? The tragedy of our times, friends, is that those who still believe in honesty lack fire and conviction. Or those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. that. Sheen said that. He, wrote that. he said that a long time ago. But that's today, isn't it? You see that every place. Those who still believe in honesty keep quiet. They lack fire and conviction or those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. It's really really true in politics, and education. Wow. You talk to some of these people who think they know what they're talking about. They really don't. They're caught up in some kind of thing. It's all emotional. There's something else going on. But it's not rational. They're not gentle folk. Think about it. They're not. You ever hear these people don't like hymns, Take him off the air. Don't like him. Instead of saying, I want to know more about what he believes, let me listen to him, which is what an intelligent person would do. They want to kick him off the air and say, he hurt my feelings. How do you know what he stands for? Get to know the deeper person. You claim, you know, if we claim we have a right to talk, we should have a respect to listen. It's the way it works in life. You see? So we get all these statements about health from people who are supposed to know better. Listen, when this this virus came out, I had friends that worked in medical labs. They're telling me just the opposite. They're telling me those masks we're wearing are dangerous. We can get viruses from them because they don't keep the virus out, the COVID-19, because it's so small, it goes right through most masks. It doesn't protect you. And other things it collects. Because there's all kinds of behavioral problems, all that, now they know. There's so much going on today that we have to be really centered. If you really want to be centered, apply moral wisdom to simplify your life. And be a gentle person. So when all this craziness happens, you can learn to see through it. Don't get caught up in the hype. You know? A lot of people who are dishonest know they're dishonest and they don't care. They have another agenda, you know, they live in a different world. So we live through a continuous awareness of the sacred. Living the gentle life is so empowering to one's spiritual existence that it even compels us to be gentle with ourselves. So much unhappiness and upset and complication occurs because we're not gentle with ourselves. I was talking to a Catholic priest one time about what he finds about people. He says, Ray, I hear confessions. I won't go into what they say, but let me tell you what they confess. They confess their weaknesses, not their sins. There's a difference. They're not gentle with themselves. We can be gentle with ourselves only if we simultaneously experience ourselves as precious, fragile, and vulnerable. We are precious. We are also fragile and vulnerable. That's why I say to people, when you critique me, do it with kindness. Honesty without kindness is cruelty. I agree with Socrates. We are precious, fragile, and vulnerable. Because we're gentle and we want to be gentle, it makes us open to others, makes us vulnerable. Because we won't be cruel to others, we'll be fragile ourselves. And because others are precious, we are too. Even a child knows that. Living the gentle life is so empowering to one's spiritual existence that it even compels us to be gentle with ourselves. See, just remember that, because we're precious, fragile, and vulnerable. There is no escaping it, friends. To live the gentle life requires us to be that which endears love to others. People like gentle people. If you're a gentle person, and somebody doesn't like you, they're not okay. There's something else going on. One of my episodes, remember what I said? People will love you and people will hate you, and it has nothing to do with you. They project. There is no escaping it. To live the gentle life requires us to be that which endears love of others. We will love others if we're gentle. Vulnerability, fragility, preciousness is that which draws the grace of God to us and enables us to live the gentle life. That's one way to put it. And you know what the grace of God is? Others, good people, will be attracted to us. You know? Sometimes people don't do good things just because they think other people are going to do it for them. In living the gentle life, we respond to love of us and the grace of our life with others. That's what we do. We respond to those who love us. If a religious person we respond to the love of God of us and love God back. That's what religious people do. But spirituality is not necessarily religious not necessarily spiritual in the religious sense. It's a human thing, spirituality. We have a spiritual side to us. Even an atheist has a spiritual side to them, even though they don't believe in anything other than this life. And even that's not correct sometimes. Some people are atheists that believe in life after after life on earth. Very complicated beings. Our efforts at living the gentle life as a characteristic of our spiritual life are marked by periods of inconstancy. You know what that means? That means we're not always constant all the time. Sometimes we change. Sometimes it takes a real effort to be a gentle person around some people. Now understand this, gentle doesn't mean naive, it doesn't mean silly, it doesn't mean ignorant, it doesn't mean stupid. It means in control of how you want to feel and live in a good life that's more simple. Because we are most often our greatest disappointments. When you work with really senior people who are in homes in their last weeks of life, and you ask them what their biggest disappointments in life are. You know what they say? Themselves. What's the biggest suffering they've ever had in their life? Loneliness. What's the biggest disappointment they've ever had in their Their greatest disappointment? Themselves. Things they did or didn't do. And you'll be surprised how often people regret the things they didn't do more than the things they did. I should have, I should have, I could have, I would have. The worst words in the English language. So, doubtlessly, when living the spiritual life, we are our own worst enemies because we carry the burden of our failures. People will just forget about us and get on with us. Things like unfaithfulness, disappointment, self-disgust. Have you ever been disgusted with yourself? I know we're all get this. We feel unfaithful because we lived against our principles. There was a movie, I think, with Robert Redford years ago and about the guys in Vegas with this girlfriend or a wife, whatever she was. And the guy was a very wealthy guy and he likes this girl and he says, I'll give you a million dollars if you go upstairs to the room with me. And her, she goes to her husband, tells her husband about the offer and so they decided to take up the guy on a million dollars. It's about how it changed their life and their relationship. Even though they both entered the deal and she went up there and sold herself for a million bucks and she came down a millionaire. It was never, ever the same. There was so much self-disgust, disappointment, unfaithfulness among the two of them. So the trip to Vegas was something that didn't stay in Vegas. You know, because they did something that was outside their morals, they abandoned their applied moral wisdom. Our spiritual lives are characterized by indifference, self-deception, and spiritual blindness. Do you know that? Because we care about some things, but we don't care about other things, and the other things often are things of other people. We deceive ourselves. We often think we're worse than we are, or we're better than we are. It's really difficult to know ourselves and be evenly balanced. Spiritual blindness. Sometimes we just don't get it. Because we have no faith. We just don't see. You ever heard of Padre Pio? Ever study his life? Really, really an amazing life. President Eisenhower had a brother named Milton. I think his brother's name was Milt. Good old Milton. was a doctor. He actually went to Italy to study Padre Pio. Because of all the things about him that were supernatural. Above the natural. He heard confessions in just about every language in the world and he understood them, never studied them, but he could translate them. So many things. He hardly ever ate, hardly ever slept. There's records of him bilocating. I mean, I could go on and on and on. These are documented facts studied by scientists. He used to just be an amazing person. And when he was dying, his he was a monk in a monastery in Italy, Capuchin Franciscan. When he was dying, his fellow monks went to the chapel, prayed to God to protect him and to preserve him. He went and he was angry with them. He said, "What have I ever done to you that you would take me away from my destiny?" Kind of went like that. I'm paraphrasing a little bit because he did in Italian. A really interesting guy. It's well documented. When he met John Paul II, he met him when he was a young priest visiting Italy, and he told him he would be a pope someday. He was pope. John Paul II helped with Ronald Reagan bring down communism in the Soviet Union. A lot of people don't know that. They don't really get it, what goes on. But this is a big world on a little planet. Our planet's not so big. We just have an average sun which is about, what, 20,000, 30,000 times bigger than the Earth or something, I forget. is bigger than we are, but we're a small planet. But it's a big planet in many ways because big things happen here. And they're usually mysteries. If you want to simplify your life, you apply moral wisdom. That's the only way you're going to simplify your life. Isn't money? Isn't success? Isn't poverty? Supplied applied moral wisdom. The call to union. The experience that we have of wanting to be together is really extraordinary. It is deeply instinctive and existential. James F. Keenan, SJ, said that. SJ means Society of Jesus. He's a Jesuit priest, highly educated professor of moral theology. Personal potency. That means personal power and beyond requires growth. You must know yourself. Identify the connections among conscience, immaturity and childishness you have forged from childhood into adulthood to where you are now. I've said this time and time again. Remember it. Forever forward, right? Learn from the past. Keep going forward. We only know the past but live for the future. We are backward-knowing, but forward-living, and we only have the now, which is a split second, and it's the past. The present becomes the past when you blink your eye, and even before that. What I have just said to you is already in the past, right? And you can recall it and think about it for the future. We're sequential living beings. Every word I say has a certain sequence that gives it meaning. Wow! Suppose I say something like future the four live, but past the know only we. Sounds crazy, right? If we talk like that, we'd have headaches all the time. We only know the past but live for the future. We are constrained by our natures. You know what transhumanism is? It's this idea that we can take on and be more than we are as human beings. That we're more than bat, cats, rats, and kangaroos so we can be more than a human being. If we use technology, right, we can be more powerful and have more skills and be smarter and learn faster and read faster, do all kinds of better things than we can do just being just human without the aid of technology. If we do data manipulation or DNA manipulation. Listen, I know people that are studying microchips to plant in your brain, so you will understand and remember things better. They're serious about this. I once, listen, when I wrote my first book, I was doing a book signing in Pleasant Hill, California at a Borders bookstore. The manager of the book, who I really liked, had a degree in high technology, technology, but he had gone into the book business. And his thing, his interest was developing microchips to plant in the brain to improve learning to people dead serious about that what do you call those cyborgs All right. <laughs> right well people are doing research on that that's a fact I knew people doing research on brain matter from animals to make them in microchip new memory capacitors things like that so the moral imperative is to advance in your morality and your understanding of applied wisdom, moral wisdom. You know, this fella that I was just telling you about actually left (laughs) left the book business, went back into technology. Back in the early 1970s, probably mid-1970s, at the New York Institute of Technology, And I wrote a paper. And it went like this. It was like a short story. And what happened is people were telling me I was too old to be going to school. After all, I was in my 20s. Approaching, you know, approaching my 30s. and I should get serious about life. And I should grow up. And I should quit doing these part-time jobs. And I should quit going to school. I should get a serious career. People were telling me stuff like that. Because I was told to go to school. Wasn't that amazing? People thought like that back then. It was very common, you know. And uh, so I would go to them and I said, let me ask you a question. If I came up with a device that you could download, I could put this thing on your head. And you could download to this machine everything you knew instantly. And you could use that to put it on somebody else's so they could teach them everything that you know. What do you think of that? And they would say to me things like, that would be great, but if it would work the other way, I would like that. So you would like somebody to download everything they know and you could put it on your head so you could know everything they know. Yes. It's okay. So learning what you know was important to you and they say, what do you mean? I said, well, let me ask you But this. If I could do this and develop a device that would allow you to download to this, this device everything you knew. And you could record it and save it so you could always listen to it later. Or share it with other people. Would that be all right? And they said, of course. I said, what happens if you would forget half of everything you knew? You would forget it. And that when you heard it play back to you you wouldn't recognize that you knew that would that be okay with you every one of them would say no that's not okay because what i know is so important to me because it makes me what i am and yet these are the same people that would tell me i was too old to be going to school and i wasn't even 30. isn't that amazing hopefully the moral imperative is to advance in your moral thinking to learn more to apply it better That's how you simplify your life. To not progress on the way of life is to regress. Remember Bernard Clairvaux, 1090 to 1153, that's when he lived. The whole point here is what you know is so much a part of you. Isn't it a shame that a lot of what you know is wrong? And a lot of stuff you remember, you don't remember it quite accurately. Because the mind is fallible. It's prone to make mistakes. So you do the best you can. One of the reasons you should be gentle, because we're prone to error. Our spiritual lives, friends, are characterized by limitations of all sorts, frustrations of all sorts, and desperations of all sorts. We get desperate. We get scared. We think about our finality. You know, Freud used to believe that we were all so impatient about our own death, that we had a death urge, because we couldn't live not knowing when we were going to die. It drove us crazy to a point, you know, that it made us uncomfortable, knowing that no matter how good things are, it's going to end and you can't do anything to stop it. I know the story of these people who actually believe they know aliens and that they've talked to them. They met these aliens. They were out camping one time somewhere in Northern California or someplace like that, Nevada or Oregon or somewhere. And they were visited by two aliens one night who dropped by, I guess they say hello in the neighborhood and talking to these aliens. They said they were, looked very human. And they learned from these aliens that they lived 800 earth years, 800 years old. They died after 800 years by earth time. I have no idea what their years were like. Interesting story, huh? Now, these people believed it was true. I wasn't there. I can't judge it. But the point they were trying to make is even these aliens knew that they were not immortal. They were finite. Their lives would end. But they also believed in that they would go on after they died to another dimension of existence, whatever that was. But the point is you can't get away from death, I guess, right? These people were absolutely sure, these campers, that they met these aliens. And uh, they thought it was an amazing thing. I think it's an amazing story, right? But the point is that in the back of our mind, we know that things come to an end. And how, how well did we live our life? I once wrote... That when i was born people laughed with joy i hope i live a life that they do the opposite when i die and the professor said to me what does that mean i said i mean i hope they miss me when i'm gone how come i have to explain that to you right but it was a difficult concept for him to understand it really gave him a problem see the guy was a famous man by the way very famous professor his name was—I won't tell you his name—but it was one word. One word. He didn't have—he th- didn't have a first name, last name, middle name. He just picked a word and made that his name. A number, and he went out and he had his driver's license changed and his name changed to that and caused problems. He had to go to court to get the right to do that. True story. He just didn't want to. Ha- have to bother with three names no kidding this is a famous guy there were people that wrote books that acknowledged him and contributing their idea his idea to their development life i liked him a lot i got to know him i wonder what happened to him some of his colleagues still are alive but he's an interesting guy i know The point is life is short and if we're open, we try to live with applied moral wisdom to simplify our life excuse me. We have better experiences. We meet interesting people because we're more open to it. Our spiritual lives are also characterized by self anger. Ever see people get angry with themselves and blame it on others. And then they start yelling at others when they're really mad at themselves. Our self-disgust inhibits all efforts at living the gentle life. Yep, it does. Impedes practicing the art of presence to the sacred. If we're disgusted with ourselves, you don't see anything as good. Since we choose to ignore that we are loved, and with the great love, we fail to love ourselves properly. You know? I see a lot of kids don't know their parents love them. There was a time when mothers would die for their children. In many cases, that doesn't exist anymore. The parents don't want to be inconvenienced by their children. But there was a time when parents would die for their children. I once met a guy who had 13 children from 13 women, and he thought it was a great thing. That was a great accomplishment. I bet you he had a really complicated life, right? Can you imagine that? 13 children from 13 different women. He lived in a state where he had to pay child support. There's nothing so... <laughs> where's his applied moral wisdom, right? He's living like what? A rabbit. I think they reproduce a lot, don't they? I mean, I think... The, I don't get these people. Since we choose to ignore that we are loved with great love, we fail to love ourselves properly. If this guy really loved himself right, he'd be more responsible. He wouldn't, he just wouldn't be living at his basest level of existence. Which is what you have here, when that happens. Our human weaknesses constrain our gentleness by reducing the character and depth of our love. The more weaknesses we have, the more we're constrained in our loving. This inauthentic love impedes our capability of living a gentle life as a witness to the sacred presence within and without us. I'll say that again. Inauthentic love impedes, that means blocks, Our capability of living a gentle life as we witness to the sacred presence within. The indifference or denial of our faults reduces our commitment to the spiritual life. You know why that's so? Because a truly spiritual person is more honest with themselves than others. Honesty is a great idea because you want to be simple in your life, you be honest. You don't have to remember all those lies. You ever meet anybody that lies about everything, everything that comes out of their mouth that lies? I've met people like that. I used to say to them, hey, do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I know that guy. I just made it up, right? And he knew that person I just made up. I meet people like that sometimes. And you can just talk to them, and no matter what, they know about it. But you don't want to ask too deep because then they'll get embarrassed because they'll find out you can see through them. So, because you want to be kind and gentle, you just feel bad for them because you know there's nothing simple going on in their life. They have too many lies to remember, for one thing. They must be worn out at nighttime. But their values will begin to be their weakness and they'll lose their conscience. So the indifference or denial of our faults reduces our commitment to the spiritual life. This, this indifference, this indifference—pardon me, this indifference—complicates the difficult task of remaining mindful to the presence of the sacred in our, in our lives. Think about it. We're losing our spiritual sight, so we really won't see other people as sacred, will we? Think about a sociopath. They look at other people as something to be used. They don't care really what's happened to them. They don't really want to hurt anybody. They don't get involved in that. They don't go that deep. Not like a psychopath. They enjoy hurting others. They get pleasure out of damaging others. A sociopath doesn't really do that. They just want to get what they want out of others. If it's an inconvenience or it hurts them, they don't go that far. It's not that they get pleasure out of it. They get pleasure out of the fact that they use them to get what they want. Think about it. They become less mindful, the people that are different to their faults are less mindful about others. Losing our mindfulness of the presence of the sacred in others, we give in to the desire to look good to others and even ourselves. Think about that. I took a break. had to take a drink of water. Losing our mindfulness of the presence of the sacred, we give in. We capitulate to the desire to look good to others and even ourselves rather than be good to others. My focus in life then becomes, what do other people think about me? And how do I get ahead in the world? Rather than living a simple, honest life, Losing our mindfulness of the presence of the sacred, we give in to the desire to look good to others and even ourselves without actually doing good. Our self-deception may become so well-formed that we become worldly even at the expense of becoming what we were inspired to become. A greater person. Rather than living as a spiritual person, a person of gentleness... We become more interested in living up to the standards of a competitive world in which only winners are valued as successful, and there are really no winners. Inevitably imbalance in reigns as our life becomes a brutal experience blocking all efforts and living the gentle life. Wow. The unnatural drive to be competitiveness. The exaggeration. Of our personal weakness and to cover it up inability to accept ourselves. moral wisdom is meaningless unless formed by submission of the will and applied to right action let me say that again moral wisdom is meaningless unless it is formed by submission to an informed will and applied to right action. Ray L. Newkirk said that. So let me share some insight with you. Insight 41 of this series: The two great drives in life are spirituality and success. Yes, competition drives us as we seek to win the approval of family, schools, and neighbors, and workmates, and so on, and, and so on, and, and so on, and so on. Spirituality and success, because success is a spiritual term. We live through a continuous awareness of the sacred. We live through that. If we have an awareness of the sacred, we live through that. It opens up our eyes, unleashes our emotions in a right way. A continuous awareness of the sacredness of life is the secret to living that gentle life, friends. Understand the sacredness of life. Once you do that, It's not okay to treat people badly or poorly, huh? Truly gentle people are few, but they exist. We've talked about that. You know some. Perhaps you're a gentle soul yourself. Living the gentle life, the authentic, the authentic, oh, let me look at here. I want to think about this. How many of you out there know truly gentle people? Are there a lot of them? Are there a few of them? I'm backing up a little bit. I want to think about that. I know in my own life the answers to that, but what about you? Do you know really what a gentle person is? Do you think it's a person that cannot defend themselves? Do you think it's a person that cannot speak up? Do you think it's shyness? It's not gentle. That's not a gentle person. They're not shy. They can hold their own. They have rigid boundaries. In living the gentle life, the authentically spiritual person is fragile and takes emotional risks because they are open to life and they can handle the outcome. Their fragility is not overwhelming because they are strong. They're enduring. They don't give up. Presence to the sacred deepens our experience of living. This is the cycle of life. I mentioned that. Seeking gentleness, we find ourselves as spiritual beings involved on a spiritual journey to attain deeper understanding of ourselves. We live through a continuous awareness of the sacred. That's right. We are most often our greatest disappointments because we see it improperly. There's no gentleness when we're really disappointed in ourselves. You it's a good attitude. Oh, well. Pick up the pieces and start again. Got to work past that. Yeah. We have to overcome our greatest disappointments by hell. Learning about moral wisdom and applying it. You become a gentle person. Become aware of your own sacredness and your disappointment will affect you differently. So a fact, love burdens itself with the wants and woes and losses and even the wrongs of others. Foote and Sheen said that, Bishop Foote and Sheen. Used to have a great radio show back in the 50s. Love burdens itself with the wants and woes and losses and even the wrongs of others. We care about the people we love. You know, remember love is a decision, not simply an emotion. One decides to love or not to love. Remember Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. The question is one decides to love or not love. And when you decide to love, you do carry burdens. The people that love you carry you sometimes. You know the one, right? About the footprints. I'm sure you all have heard that. The sentiment about the footprints. About somebody carrying a burden. You should do research on that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. Footprints, and see what you come up with. I'm sure the answer will be there. Counsel involving right and wrong should never be sought from a man who does not say his prayers. Fulton Sheen said that. Now, that's really neat, isn't it? It's kind of humorous, right? Strong point he's making. Counsel involving right and wrong should not be sought from a man who does not say his prayers. There's a movie actor named Steven Seagal made some movies and he talked about, he played a role of some colonel in the military, right? And uh, the movie was modeled on this guy. It was a colonel, he did a lot of things and he, he ended up saving a lot of people because this guy was all about doing the right thing preventing harm to the greatest number of people and all that stuff. His name was Ryberg. I think Colonel Ryberg. Here's the point. I mentioned this earlier. I once worked in the Middle East with Colonel, Colonel Ryberg, the guy that I think the movie was made after. It's just like this guy. He's out solving all kinds of problems in the military, in Vietnam, doing amazing things. So I asked him one time for some advice on a problem. This is what he said to me. Ray, look where you are. You have admirals that work with you. I'm nowhere near where you are. Whatever you know and whatever you're doing, it's working. Don't ask me for advice. (laughs) All right. That's probably the best advice i had ever gotten. Bob Ryberg, Colonel Bob Ryberg. At the time, he's from Hawaii. But I never forgot that. That was in February 1984 when he told me that. I think it was, let's see, I think it was on a Saturday. I was riding in a car with him. He was driving. We are going from someplace on a naval base in Saudi Arabia. We are having a discussion. I remember I asked him that question about advice. That's what he said to me. They made movies about this guy. You know? And I thought he'd be a good one to get his opinion. And his opinion was, don't ask me for advice. And what I learned is he was really right. I don't like to give advice because it could be wrong. And I don't want the responsibility for telling you wrong. You've heard me say this three or four times. I like sharing insight. And then working together on on a problem that people can solve together. Counsel involving right and wrong should never be sought from a man who does not say his prayers. Counsel does not advise. It's sharing wisdom. But that's really great insight, isn't it? So guess what? Our time is up on episode nine. Thank you for joining me on this discussion about Applied Moral Wisdom. I uh, will be back with episode 10 next week. I'm trying to figure out about now how I'm going to do it. I'm going to add new content. Or am I going to summarize what we've covered in the last nine episodes? You know, I am sharing with you insight that I've learned in my lifetime. Working all over the world from high level to low level. Look, at, I've been a janitor and I've also worked for presidents. I've worked in some amazing places. And uh, I had my first job when I was a little kid. I was a janitor. I cleaned restrooms in a boathouse. Let me tell you something. Men's restrooms were always cleaner than the women's restrooms, okay? With the graffiti on women's restrooms would knock your socks off. I was shocked. I guess I was 15 years old when I had that job. I grew up really quickly reading the graffiti on women's restrooms. I never forgot it. What I learned about life are women and men are really a different species. Men and women are really quite different. Really quite different in many ways. The DNA makes a difference. All right? And you can see that. And I, the jokes that they told, the things that they said, the, the complaints that they, they wrote. on. I had to clean all that stuff up, you know. Get that stuff, that lipstick off the walls. You know, Min just had the different problem. They left the water on and stuff like that, All right? <laughs> but uh, I was a young kid, you know. Uh, probably, in, what I'm trying to think, I, I was probably even 15. I was still what in the ninth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, something like that. Cleaned the restrooms. Always wanted to go to work, and uh, so. The thing I learned is that we can be fully human, and not all of us make it. So, I'm Dr. Ray Newkirk of Systems Management Institute. My phone number, if you ever want to call me, is 407-864-7756. If you can get through, that would be great. I get a lot of phone calls. My email, drop me a note, is rnewkirk at smilc.info. That's not SMIL, S-M-I-L-E. It's not SMILE. It's S-M-I-L-C. Stands for Systems Management Institute Learning Center. S-M-I-L-C info. My current web page, and I've had dozens of them, is www.smirsp.com and forever forward. Right? Keep it going. And I thank you very much. And See you at episode 10. Good night, everybody. Or I should say good morning. My goodness, here we are, 4 o'clock in the morning.